Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, let's thank our worship team. There's no better way really to uh, reinforce our identity in Christ than to take it to God in worship. Uh, the only thing that might be better than taking our identity to God in worship is baptism. And that's what we're celebrating today. And I just want to, I'm bringing a sermon, and it's one of my favorite sermons to ever preach because I have a great tag team. So I'm going to preach with the help of uh, Phil and Connie and Greer about our identity in Christ and what baptism is. And I'm going to be preaching to you from the book of Romans, chapter 6. And I want to read the first four verses of this to you and then read it in the message uh, translation and just really dwell on a couple things about our identity and baptism and how baptism is both a point at which we declare our agreement by faith with God about our identity, and then baptism is also a point in which we are privileged to dramatize what our trust is based on. So it's a declaration and it's a dramatization about the redemptive power of Christ's love. So here is what God's word says from Romans 6. He begins by saying, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So it's a declaration that we are resting entirely upon the death and resurrection of Christ, but it's also a dramatization of the death and resurrection of the Christ as we, in a sense, see the reenactment of Jesus in the tomb then raising up to life. So I like the way the message translation brings this message out clearly. He, he translates it this way. He says, so what shall we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? And this is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left our old country of sin behind. And when we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. And baptism is the declaration of that. He says when we were buried with Christ in baptism, it's saying there's something that unites us with Christ when we submit in obedience to that command of baptism. And it's like if, if you were uh, married and you had an exchange of rings. In that marriage service, you may have said, with this ring, I take you, or with this ring, I thee wed. It's not the ring that actually establishes the marriage, but the ring, as they place it on the finger, it is the outward sign of the vows that really make a person uniquely husband and wife, vows that are made promises to God as well as to each other. And, and baptism is that, that outward sign that binds two people into one. Baptism is that outward sign that, that binds us outwardly. It doesn't make us Christians, but it, it publicly declares that. And as such, baptism is notably the first act of the Christian life. It's not something that is intended by God to be formed in the middle, or, or as, as Constantine thought in the third century, that it was to be postponed until the very end. He's like, I want to make sure that since the water's going to wash away my sins, I want to make sure I get all my sinning done, and then I'll be baptized. If, if that were the case, I feel sorry for these 1045 people, because this water would be filthy dirty. 
if it were actually the instrument of washing away sins. Well, baptism declares that there's only one place on the planet in time and history where our sin has been dealt with, and that is through the cross of Christ and, and through his death. And, and, and so it's the first act of the Christian life. And sometimes we get this all backwards. We act as if baptism is like this some big test. It's like the bar exam or your, your MCATs or, or some big exam you've got to prep for and get ready for as a mark of success. But there's about 27 times in the New Testament that refer to the fact that baptism takes place immediately after the gospel is preached and believed. So they didn't have time to take an extended course on the finer points of theology or uh, go make restitution for all the things wrong that they've done. All of that can come out later, but baptism is that initial reception. And so we have in the book of Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the sermon to all these pilgrims from all these other countries who had not heard that Jesus died an atoning, forgiving death, that he rose from the dead. And upon hearing it, they're called to repent and to believe. And then we read that 3,000 of them were baptized. Was it long later than another few thousand are baptized? Then we read of an Ethiopian who was reading Isaiah 53, and he asked someone to explain it to him. Philip the deacon explained Isaiah 53 to him, and he believed, and he, then he said, what prevents me from being baptized? And as soon as they found enough water, he was baptized. Or, or, or the Philippian jailer who had had Paul and Silas flogged. I mean, he's, he's a rough guy. Uh, and as the gospel was proclaimed to him and as he believed it, we read that not only he, but he and his own household. So that even his descendants, we don't, we don't have reported specifically all the ages of them, but we can assume there would be children there. And, and many times in the Bible, there are 12 times that baptism is reported on. Three of those times, it mentions the whole household. So you might say, and I choose this word carefully, but God is very promiscuous with baptism water. <laughs> He's like, as soon as you believe, he, he wants that enactment uh, of his claiming grace. And whenever you are baptized, at whatever age, we know that what it points to is a declaration that you're relying not upon yourself, but through the grace of Christ alone, through faith in Christ alone, and through his saving death on the cross, you, you're arresting your life. And so it comes at the very beginning. Baptism is not a job interview. It's an adoption ceremony. <laughs> Baptism is not something that you do something or get done for yourself, but it is something that you passively receive. Because that's the way redemption is. You, you, you are passive in a sense. With open hands, uh, you receive the gift of baptism. And baptism reminds us that there's no ladder of holiness that you have to climb first. There's no self-improvement plan that you follow first. It's just death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the proclamation. And it's that same God who reaches down in the depth of our deepest graves, reaches down and draws us out with the power that raised Christ from the dead and rests us out of our sin. Whatever that sin is, whatever we've been locked into, a pattern of addiction or pride or self-sufficiency, or pretending we've got it together, he lifts us out of that. And, and in a sense, we demonstrate, again, our reliance upon that in baptism. We declare our reliance upon Jesus Christ. I love how in the baptism of Jesus Christ, uh, you have the whole Trinity. It's interesting, the Trinity shows up because the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each essential, unique, and unified in our redemption 
And as Jesus is baptized, and again, he was the only human who had no sin to wash away in his baptism, but we read that Jesus was being baptized and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and the Father spoke these words, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved. And it established publicly the identity of Christ for all his ministry. And the next thing that happened to Jesus, he was led by the same Spirit into the wilderness and to be tempted by Satan. And what did Satan attack? He attacked his identity. He said, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, do this, do this. But baptism establishes it. I love how um, Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, um, st- when he struggled with a number of emotional issues, and he had a bunch of them, <laughs> definitely probably struggled with what we would call clinic, clinical chronic depression. It's probably a, a physical illness that he had. Uh, many people say from his writings and journals, he, he seemed to be bipolar, and yet a great and very used servant of God that when he would struggle and he would especially experience the attack of the enemy breathing down his neck, he would often respond. And we have this in his writings. He would say, Martin Luther, remember, you have been baptized. You are the beloved of Christ. It establishes the, our identity because in a sense, baptism is a naming. And, and it places the name that we are the beloved of God um, over us. But baptism then also is a dramatization. And and he says, again, when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death. And it declares to us what we specifically celebrate over the week of Easter, that Jesus Christ actually, he accepted going to death for us. Uniquely, Jesus is the only person who can actually ever die for someone, giving up his life for someone, laying down his life. If someone else commits an act of heroic valor and maybe they jump in front of a moving train to push someone out of the way and they sacrifice their life, they can't really have died in the same way Jesus died for us because we all owe God a death. You could simply say, oh, they volunteered to die a little earlier than they would have, maybe decades earlier. But Jesus never owed nature a death. He didn't owe the law of God a death. He he was the only innocent, and and because of that fully immortal one who ever lived, he didn't have to die, but he entered the fray of death. And so in baptism, and particularly as we're celebrating it this morning, it points to the moment in the tomb where Jesus, after he cried out on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit, and cried out, victoriously, it is finished, the work of redemption is finished. Uh, in, in baptism, we enter into the tomb where Jesus' lifeless body lay. The, the synapses and neurons of his brain had stopped firing. His lungs no longer were full of air. He had taken his last breath. His blood, the precious blood, the only thing that can ever cleanse our polluted consciences the only thing that has and can and ever will cleanse us, the blood of Jesus Christ, it stopped pumping. And he's lying in that tomb as a corpse, lifeless and dead, because the death of our death demanded the death of Jesus. There was a moment, a moment in time that changed all of our destinies and the destinies of this world. And all of a sudden, the heart started beating and the blood started pumping. And there was a moment where the neurons fired in the brain and he took his first breath 
And then he actually rose up from where he was reclining in resurrection life. And so this baptism dramatizes that great event upon which our destinies depend, upon which eternal life is offered to us, and says that baptism is not only a watery grave, but baptism is, is the womb of eternal spiritual life, demonstrating that that all came not through our baptism, but through what baptism dramatizes and declares through the empty tomb that Jesus rose up out of. I love what Juan Carlos Ortiz, who's an evangelist in Argentina, stated when he baptized someone, he would not just say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, but he would say the person's name, and then he would say, I kill you in the name of the Father, I kill you in the name of the Son, I kill you in the name of the Holy Spirit. Because in a sense, he was saying, this is when our old self is dealt the death blow. Martin Luther said, yeah, our old self in baptism is dealt the death blow, but our old self is a very good swimmer. And our old self follows us, and it seeks to sabotage us, and, 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 it, and it haunts us. It doesn't mean there's no problems or difficulties following our faith in Christ, but it means that that old self has been given notice, and it is going to be completely eradicated and removed when Jesus completes his work in us. And so he says, now we walk in the newness of life that the worst our flesh can do is commit gr- kind of guerrilla warfare against a victory that has been won and is certain and Jesus is going to come back and mop it all up until we're freed from not only the penalty of sin but also the power and the presence of sin. And so that's what these stories are going to bring to us. And before we go to these individuals, um, our worship team is going to share a song that just depicts the infinite grace in this and then we'll continue this sermon in Three Changed Lives.